Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Attenzione, attenzione! <laughs> um, you're listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the Second World War podcast with me, Al Murray. And me, James Holland. And uh, as usual, we're doing some regulars. We've got our World War II thing. Yep. And we've got our World War II stuff and some exciting things like that. We're going to be looking at a very, very interesting weapon that you own, Al. Yes. And we're all going to be delving into a kind of dark and... Oh, a depressing story from Northern Italy, but really, really interesting too, and unknown. Um, but first of all, we got a question from from a John, and John wants to know: Is it true that Hugo Boss designed Nazi uniforms? It's a bit of an old chestnut. This well, time. yeah, and because um, uh, uh, if you put "Did you know Hugo Boss designed Nazi uniforms?" into Google, up comes um, basically a load of illustrations taken from um, kind of your Osprey Publishing or <laughs> anyone who you know. I mean, this really looks like a sort of Jane's Book of Nazis illustration which is 1934 hugo boss hugo boss collection and it's pictures of you know it's pictures of himmler and various people and and britches and lots of leather uh, lots of leather ss lots of black yeah um a bit of piping on uh, on on the classic the classic um high uniform look really more than anything else so the yeah. tailored uniform look and is of course, this, it- is this but you know and and russell brand famously at gq awards yeah. a few years ago 
got up and had a go at Hugo Boss for like for designing Nazi novels. Is this true? No. <laughs> no, it's not. It's absolutely nonsense. So um, Hugo Boss never designed anything until after the war, and I think it was his son who took on the business from the ruins of the Third Reich yeah. and developed into the kind of West German fashion brand it has become today. But no, Hugo Boss was a business before the war, and they certainly manufactured um, uniforms for the Wehrmacht and also for the SS, but they didn't design them. And actually, um, the design process was done um, within uh, a cadre of people within the Waffen-SS. Yeah. Uh, not the Waffen-SS, it was just the SS. Yeah. Um, and, and ditto within the Wehrmacht too, but with a kind of Nazi slant, of course. Uh, and a lot of it aped earlier imperialistic German uh, um, uniforms from the late 1890s and so on. And the Lancer uniform basically didn't really change, did it? Not the first massively, yeah. no. It's basically a late 19th century tunic, which has just been adapted and is completely pointless and over-tailored and yeah. over-engineered and, and far yeah. too much wool, yeah. considering they don't have many sheep. But what is really interesting is um, uh, back at home in my cupboard, locked up in a, in a dark uh, case with multiple locks on, is a Nazi greatcoat. Uh, from 1938 it's it's you know it's the rommel double-breasted yeah. ss kind of you know hair flick um double-breasted leather great coat probably used about four cows to make it yeah um it's it's really heavy it's enormous and the moment you put it on you just look like a nazi which is why i don't wear it really <laughs> no, no but 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 it is fascinating and it is an amazing piece of of tailoring. I mean, what is really interesting is, is that the Germans don't really do mass production of anything. And certainly when it comes to their uniforms, they have zillions of different manufacturers. And I remember once going, being in the archives, the German archive, military archives are in Freiburg and Breslau, yes. which is in the uh, Schwarzwald in the, in the Black Forest. Yep. And it's an amazing place. And uh, I'm fantastically inefficient, incidentally, oh, uh, okay. and chaotic. But once you get the bits that you need, it's great. Anyway, you get this big dusty folder of, of kind of manufacturers that are making uniforms. And the list just goes on for pages and pages and pages throughout the whole of Germany. These different kind of clothing manufacturers that are making, making uniforms to spec. And they're just, you know, it's just not very efficient. So it's not standardised, it's not efficient. It's standardised, but it's not. Um, so the, the, the production of it is standardised in that, you know, obviously everything looks exactly the same and they're yeah. using the same materials but there are different manufacturers making this of which Hugo Boss is one right well there we go that that but although um, they have a they have apologised, haven't they? They've, um, they, they, I mean, they, they, but they've been browbeaten into yeah, apologising. Yeah, 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 apologise yeah, yeah, for absolutely. anything. But the truth, but the tr but, but the truth is, is, this is actually illustrative of the fact is, is absolutely every aspect of German society, manufacturing, everything was co was in, in in the end co opted by the Nazi state. So to pick one to pick one company out is yeah. kind of is sort of pointless in a way isn't it yeah yeah and there's loads of companies that you know uh um what's that cassette manufacturer BASF, BASF yeah BASF okay so they were incorporated into RG Farben weren't they I think yeah uh, and uh RG Farben was stripped at the end of the war and no longer allowed to be RG yeah. Farben yeah uh um uh, what else is uh um there's absolute alliance yeah uh adidas yeah um haribo yeah haribo sweets you know, invented in the 1920s. It's the one suite that every German has in his pocket is a, is a Haribo. Yeah. You know, do, do you do an embargo? I'm not having a Haribo ever again, not because of all that sugar that's going to give me a heart attack. I'm not doing it because they colluded with the Nazis. I mean, of course you're not. Question here from James Williams and a, and a 
one that's tied in by Brian Leggett. James says, why is Finland's role in the war so overlooked? And Brian says, this plus why have the British volunteers who travelled to Finland been practically ignored? Well, it's politics, isn't it? Um, uh, I think is the reason the war in Finland... The war in Finland falls into a very peculiar position, doesn't it? Because um, having to come to Finland's rescue, and there was a French... uh, There was a French suggestion that that, that the French and the British would do that. Yes, that they go up and take the the, the Swedish iron ore mines at... Gallinor or yeah, whatever and, it's and basically called, get involved in a war. Across. Yeah, get involved in a war with the Russians. There was a suggestion of doing that, and you kind of think how um, all over the place France was in in 1939, and they were p- considering that politically. Um, uh, and we should add, actually, that that of course Russia invaded Finland. It wasn't the Nazis; it was oh, yeah, Russia invading Russia. Karelia, yeah, um, this peninsula in Finland. Um, and so the idea was to go and defend the poor old Finns. Yeah. So what you so what it would have what it would have taking that action if the British and the French had taken that action, it would have been an acknowledgement that the Russians and the um, uh, uh, Germans were actually working as an as an alliance rather than this non-aggression pact. And of course, that it was an alliance. Um, it, it's just that politics has has put us in a position where we kind of have to say, oh, it was a non-aggression pact, it wasn't an alliance, retrospectively, actually, they weren't working together, as in fact, they cooperated pretty closely, certainly in Poland, they let each other know exactly what they were up to and where their, where their, where their armies met, and there were celebrations when their armies met in September 1939, and all that sort of thing. So Finland has to be sort of faded from the picture, because it's incredibly inconvenient um, uh, to the way we, we looked at the war and have looked at the war since. I mean, it's an extraordinary story of the Finns beating the Russians hollow, the Russians having no answers. The Russian army's just, the Red Army's just been purged. So it's got its officers, officer classes completely been stripped of talent and ambitious people. And uh, and is and is obviously its morale is shattered. Four out of five marshals executed. Yeah. Like 22,000 officers yeah. in the Red Army executed. Yeah. So you've, so, so little wonder the, and the Finns obviously, they, they have, and it's winter and the Finns have an estimation of what they can achieve and the russians don't and of course the russians russians have a, a, a difficult command system because i expect in soviet russia it was quite difficult to tell your boss if things were going badly there's the nkvd and it, the whole thing was it, done it, in snow it, yeah 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 so and the finns had skis and white white uniforms yeah so it's, you know, it's white it's parkers it's and an, things and it, the russians didn't at the time exactly it's an extraordinary story but the reason it's overlooked is 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 politics and the way the war turned out because of course and and you you watch this amazing handbrake turn happen in british politics after barbarossa begins where you know the communist party of great britain for instance has been sat on its um hands since the nazi soviet um aggression pra- uh, non aggression pact because they obviously having up to that up to the point of the molotov ribbentrop pact they've been staunchly anti-fascist and now that the soviets are accommodating the nazi party and accommodating nazi germany the communist party of great britain has to go oh um it's uh everything's cool um and in fact the nazis aren't that bad and the the real fascism or the real fascism is capitalism present where we are and so so you have this very odd thing going on in the left which then of course after barbarossa that flips over 
Uh, and actually, uh, in terms of British volunteers, I mean, it's really interesting because they did get a force together and they, yeah. they took them all off training. And it was basically, can anyone ski? And of course, it was all the guardsmen because <laughs> they were the only ones who were kind of posh enough to have yeah. been skiing in the Alps before the war. <laughs> so they got on a train. And I remember talking to um, Stephen Hastings, who was a Scots guardsman. He was great mates with Carol Mather, who we were speaking about the other day, um, and George Jellicoe. And they... Um, <laughs> and they went on a train down to the Alps, down to you know Geneva or wherever, yeah. and, and went off skiing. And he said, "Yes, you could tell where we we're going by all the discarded champagne bottles on the train route." <laughs> I mean, and so they they had a marvelous time in the early part of 1940, 1940 yeah. skiing in the Alps, and they were all set, you know, done their ski training and all the rest of it. Had a wizard time, came back to England, all set to go off to Finland, and then uh, the Finns signed a peace treaty in yeah. March with yeah. with the Russians. That was that. Well, and then the Finns, of course, sided sided with um the, the, <laughs> with the Nazis, yeah because yeah, they the, were attacking leningrad exactly in the end i mean the, 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 i mean the, so it all gets a bit murky and a bit complicated it's murky it's complicated we don't know quite what to think about the Finns. It, exactly the it's, plucky Finns to start off with and then uh hang on a minute they've said pro nazi axis Finns. oh yeah exactly so it's po- so, it's politics really i think in answer to james's question i think and, and vol- also, I think the other thing is, of course, is in the big scheme of things, it wasn't really that significant either in terms of global no. effect on the on the war. No. Although, if you're Finnish, it probably feels, feels pretty, pretty, you know, as ever, there's a British perspective on, on things, you need to sometimes step away from that. I mean, what it did, what it, I think what it what it definitely showed is that what problems the Red Army had, and um, and which then obviously in 1941, uh, 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 writ large by... By Barbarossa. Well, it's one of the reasons why Hitler goes into the Soviet Union in June 1941 rather than 43, 44, which is what he's originally intending. Partly it's because he hasn't defeated, well, a large part of it's because he hasn't defeated Britain yeah. and he's running out of cash. You know, they've been like kids in sweet shops in all these places, they've, these occupied territories, France and Belgium and Holland and wherever. And they've just, you know, the cupboard is now bare. And the old problems they have of not having access to the world's oceans have not been solved. Yeah. And so what do you do? Well, you need it. You need food. You need oil. You need all sorts of stuff. The Soviet Union is going to be the Raj of Nazi yeah. Germany, effectively. Yeah. That's what that's their inspiration. So the point about all this is the Red Army's really poor performance in Finland, where they really are shown to be, you know... Bad at it. Yeah, really bad at it. Yeah. Also encourages Hitler. He thinks, well, you know, we've just beaten kind of one of the world's superpowers and two of the world's superpowers, Britain and France, you know, going into Soviet Union, a bunch of idiotic Slavs and Untermenschen who can't yeah. even defeat Finland. I mean, yeah. You know, how hard can it be? Yeah. Completely, so, uh, you know, not realizing, of course, it's the very infrastructure of France that enables them to move quickly. Yeah. So, so Finland's role in the war wasn't overlooked by. Hitler and was no. So actually, so I completely retract what I said earlier. Actually, it was really significant. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> now I have an item. I haven't brought it in with me because we're in my kitchen, and I have this. So it, it's it, this isn't show and tell exactly. It's it is a bit really. I have here. It is. It's on the kitchen worktop because I, I can't put it on the kitchen table because it might scuff it. It is. Uh, we'll describe it to the. To the um, listener, it's a, well, it's a machine gun. <laughs> That's the best way of putting it. it and it's, uh, the M, it's an MG42. So if you're familiar with, uh, if you're familiar with German small arms, you know exactly what this is. But this is the sort of, the infamous um, German machine gun that had a very... The Spandau. The Spandau. That's As right. It had a very, guns. very high rate of fire. And uh, and would sound like tearing cardboard. Like that's what well, that's the sound you would hear, wasn't it? Hitler's buzzsaw. Yeah, exactly. Hitler's buzzsaw. 
And I've, I was given this by my, um, <laughs> years and years ago, by my manager as a birthday present. Because he's very, he's very imaginative <laughs> uh, uh, gift giver. And the thing is, when the, the courier came to the door with this heavy, long cardboard box, right? And obviously this gun is decommissioned. You can't use it. You, it the, the breech is all melted shut, welded shut and all that sort of thing. So, you know, have no panic, anyone. When the bloke brought it to the door it, and, and gave it to me with the weight, I immediately knew exactly what it was. Because <laughs> I, <laughs> I know my manager, he knows me. And it just weighed exactly, I thought, uh, and I thought, this, this is an MG42, it must be, it can't be anything else. <laughs> and uh, I got, you know, so I get the Stanley knife out and cut it from its packaging, and there it is. But, but this gun, this weapon, is one of, the, is one of, is one of those things that people are, are, are drawn to. I mean, it, it, it's a two-man gun. Because it's a heavy piece of kit, isn't it? I mean, this is this, a bit over a metre long, isn't it? Yeah, it's about a metre long, yeah. It's heavy. Um, it really is heavy. It's about, what, 20 pounds, something yeah, like that? Yeah, roughly. It looks, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. It looks pretty, like, roughly stamped together. It's sort of a series of plates, and there's no, nothing fine on it, is there? Well, I mean, the whole point of it was to replace the MG34, which obviously, as the name suggests, was came into commission in 1934. Um which was much more beautifully made, much more engineered, took around 150 man hours to make, whereas the MG42 took 75. Right, right. And actually, it probably comes as no surprise to know that I've got one or two of these weapons <laughs> back in my little man cave at home. Well, I have got an MG34. and Actually, I remember once coming up, I had to give a give a presentation and one of them, I was going to do a bit of show and tell, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll come up with these various weapons. And I had, I had a Schmeisser, you know, yeah. an, an MP40, a machine, which is a machine gun, you know, submachine yeah. gun, and various other things in, in a in a holdall. And I suddenly got to Paddington Station, and I suddenly realised that actually the barrel of my Schmeisser was kind of pointing just a little bit too obviously out of one end. <laughs> oh, my God. So I thought, God, I better get a... You know, I'm about to be zapped if I'm not careful by the kind of police, transport police. So um, I then went into a bank shop. I said, right, I just need a bag that's bigger than this that I can just plonk this straight into. And I just couldn't, I bought it and then couldn't quite get it in. And she goes, why don't you just empty your other bag and then sort of start again? I was like, no, 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 it's absolutely fine. Uh, I'm all right, sort of looking at this policeman with a kind of sort of SWAT gun on it. Uh, Jeepers. Uh, yeah, no, no, it was really quite hairy, actually. And it was a kind of, sort of lesson, kind of don't take them out of your front room in yeah, the future. Yeah, not really. I mean, I've anyway. got, this hasn't, le- this hasn't left the house. Uh, let's just put it that way. Um, but the, but <laughs> I can't believe you did that. I know, it's really I mean, stupid. Really stupid. <laughs> it's a good idea at the time. Reading your obituary. I mean, I have my, you know, I have my deactivation <laughs> certificates on me, but that's not really going to Yeah, but that, yeah, but that doesn't... When someone's shouting across a railway station at you well, the whole of the, <laughs> while everyone else at Paddington is lying on the ground and you're going, I've got my certificate. You, re, you reach into the bag for the yeah. commission. Well, my new Yeah, exactly. It's not really going to work, is it? Um, but but this machine gun is a. I mean, the, I mean, the interesting thing about this is is that the Americans after the war copied it, didn't they? Uh, yep, and you can still it's still a form of this is now called the M3, I think. Yeah, um, and and you know it's still used, although with a certain amount of modifications which you didn't have in the Second World War. Now, what you want with you know what you get from this is a huge amount of lead yeah. in a in a being fired in an initial part of an engagement, which is really good news. Yeah, that's it's, really because helpful. it's it's rate of fire is the thing that... that, that 1,400 rounds a minute. Yeah, when so you, that's uh, like 15 a second, 12 yeah. a second. God, God almighty. Yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. 
Um, and and that's compared to, I mean, because we're, we're going to end up talking about it's uh, uh, the, the Allied equivalents. A Bren gun... 600, 500 rounds per minute. Which is a sort of audible knock, knock, yeah. knock, 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 rather, yeah. than, rather, than a, rather than a... It's the same as a Maxim gun. Right. From the First World War. Right. Which killed, you know, wounded 60,000 people on the first day of the song. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so, so I mean, I remember reading a, book, <laughs> reading a book once by a very well-known author, um, number one bestseller and all the rest of it, and it said, the MG42 was the preeminent, preeminent small arms weapon of the Second World War. Anyway, some years later, I was, I was um, or not long after, I was then visiting the brilliant, wonderful Lieutenant Colonel retired John Starling, mm. who runs the small arms unit at Shrivenham, which is the Combined Services Staff College yeah. just outside Swindon. And I think that is keeping going. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, they've got this, this sort of, you know, room stuff full of small arms, all the way from kind of 1700 right up to now. And... In it, they've got lots of Second World War stuff, as you would imagine. Literally everything you can think of. And one of the first things I saw was an MG42. So I said, well, of course, you know, that's the best machine gun of the war, wasn't it, John? And he just <laughs> went, says who? Says who? And in the next five minutes, totally deconstructed why it wasn't, in any shape or form, the yeah. best small arms weapon of the Second World War. And he pointed out that, you know, rate of fire, having huge rate of fire comes with all sorts of problems. Because, you know, every one of those 12 to 15 bullets that is firing per second has a little explosion because what happens in a bullet is you've got charge in it uh, and you know um, a spark hits the charge which there was then a confined explosion within that chamber that little yeah. brass chamber um, which then forces the bullet forward so if you're doing that kind of 15 times a second that, that starts to generate a huge amount of heat so very quickly your barrel goes from kind of sort of hot to red hot to white hot and of course what happens the moment it gets really really hot and it gets white hot it starts to melt and therefore yeah. it doesn't work yeah or it yeah. doesn't work very well and, yeah. and, and what accuracy you did have which wasn't great in the first place is just completely gone so you have to replace it so you have to have at least six spare barrels with you to to, to function with this and you have to control your rate of fire and to, to, to stop it from, from melting. And if you look at kind of wartime instruction manuals, it says very clearly it is, you know, totally verboten to um, fire for more than 250 rounds consecutively, which obviously doesn't take very long. No. So what that actually means is in reality, it might have this rate of fire of 14, 1500 rounds per minute, but in actual fact, your, your practical rate of fire is about 120. Because if you fire more than 120, I just going, yeah, you know, intermittently, it ain't going to work. And so, actually, again, when you look at a Bren gun or you look at a, a 30 caliber machine gun or a bar or whatever, yeah. the actual the, the actual rate of fire is, you know, in the case of the Bren, sort of 500 rounds per minute. But the the practical rate of fire is about 120. So they're firing about the same. It's really really interesting. And the problem, of course, that the Germans have at Omaha Beach on D-Day is that your firing discipline tends to go out the window pretty damn quickly when you've yeah. got thousands of six-foot-two square-jawed Americans coming towards you with amazing teeth. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, and offshore naval guns are hurtling at you. You think, do you know what? I'm going to sort that whole verboten after 250 rounds. I'm just going to keep firing. Yeah, yeah. So what happens is your machine gun doesn't work very, very well after a very short period of time. And there's a guy called Heinz Severo who's a, a, at a, one of the strong points overlooking the Colville yes. exit yes. on, I think, Easy Red or something. Yeah. And um, the grass either side of him catches fire because of the heat from his MG42. <laughs> so it's great. And, you know, there is an argument that says, 
it's better to kill 20 people with one bullet rather than one person with 20. Yeah. And I have to say, I have had, I've been lucky enough to fire a few of these, these weapons. And I remember firing the Bren, it just drills it. Yeah. You know, the, the 30 caliber drills it, you know, absolutely unbelievable. Just keep going all day. That thing, it's like an absolute beast. The other thing, which I never appreciated, is the amount of smoke. And obviously, they, you know, they don't have as, it, the, the, the stuff they're using is, is pretty smokeless in the, in the day, but you're still getting enough. Yeah. And, and you can't see in front of you because yeah. it's always. I mean, the other thing is, is if, if, you're, if it's burning through ammunition at that rate, you, you've got to carry that ammunition. Well, unless you're you, using 120 rounds a minute. Well, yes, in the end, yes, if you, it's worth averaging out the same. Uh, it, it, but, that, but this strikes me as. Um, because German technology gets talked about a lot as a, as, a, as as superior to Allied, and and as you say, I mean, we were fighting the we were refighting the Battle of Hastings a little here, um, as it were. The um, uh, the idea that this is a superior weapon very much comes from a, an idea that German tech, German weaponry was superior. That that's a, an idea that has has really gripped people and 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 kind of won't go away. Um, and you know, we were talking about the snazzy tailoring earlier on, the Hugo Boss. Tailoring he didn't do, as it were, but th- but these all feel to me like part of the same sort of a cult- kind of cultural appreciation of of of, of German militaristic culture, and and you know the Tiger tank, of course, bigger, heavier, bigger weapon, uh, thicker armor, um, the the, the led you know the, the legend, the Tiger, and and you get this sort of size is important thing, or or rate, rate of, of fire. fire is important. And not really considering that the Tiger tank is too is really it's a big heavy tank, but that might mean it's difficult to transport. That might mean it might not fit on a in a railway tunnel that easily. It might not it might not get over a bridge, small country bridges in northern France that easily. And, well, it certainly it, won't it, if you're it, trying to advance. And well, you know, exactly, that's one of the reasons why you want to tie, why you want a Sherman to be at thirty tons well, rather it, than fifty six. Exactly, but but you're but, not going to so, be able to bridge it. But but what I'm saying is you end up with these sort of because because after all, famously. Um, Udet, when he was commissioning aircraft for the Luftwaffe, had a dive bomber requirement for all bombers. So yeah, every amazing. every bomber, every bomber that was brought to the Luftwaffe um, had to be capable of dive bombing. So Udet so is this um, is, yeah. is, is this amazing fighter race from the First yeah. World War, and he's a barnstormer post-war. And he's best bezies with with Hermann Goering, who's yeah. the commander in chief of the Luftwaffe, as well as being the world's only ever six-star general. And as a Reichsmarshal, and uh, <laughs> he loved being bad. <laughs> and yeah, and we're doing it. We should do a whole podcast on Goering because he's really, really yeah, interesting. Yeah. But, but like down the line, but but Uda is this amazing, amazing pilot. And Goering, because he's his mate, appoints him head of procurement yeah. of the Luftwaffe, and he's just all at sea in this kind of totally Machiavellian Nazi world, and he's just absolutely lost it. But both him and Yashonik, who is the chief of staff of the Luftwaffe, both become obsessed with. With, with dive bombing and that's fine yeah. in a single engine plane yeah. like the JU87 Stuka yeah. but then they go well you know they're developing this kind of fast medium bomber the, J- the Junkers 88 and they go you know what we'd be really great if this could dive bomb too and so they go to Junkers and say well what do you think and Junkers do loads of teeth sucking and go well you know we can do it but it'll cost you and it does and it makes it much slower and it's nothing like as good yeah. as it could have been <laughs> then they go you know what, that four-engine bomber we're developing, that Heinkel 177, wouldn't it be great if we can dive bomb? And you, know, <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to be a sort of aerodynamicist to realise that that just isn't going to work. And it's a total dog and kills something like 32 of the yeah. best Luftwaffe test pilots trying to get this thing up and running, and it, and it never works. So, yeah, you're right. You know. So, yeah, because there's, there's this, this thing of... Big, big, because rate of fire... I mean, the thing is, if you're... A, you know, I remember, I, I remember um, as a kid, you'd read about this, and you'd think, wow, the rate of fire, well, that's obviously... 
that it's like a thing that a 12 year old would come up with is I need a machine gun that can, that can fire, fire, fire a th- 1200 rounds a, a second or whatever, yeah. fire, uh, millions of rounds. And that's, that solves, that solves whatever the problem is w- without a, a moment's consideration for all the problems it creates. Well, one of the reasons why we put this on an elevated position, of course, because a lot of the testimonies of the Second World come, come from Allied troops who've come up against this thing. And obviously, if you're coming up against a thing that can fire at kind of 1,400 rounds a minute or 15 bullets a second or whatever, that's not a huge amount of fun, and it seems pretty yeah. scary. If you come up against a Tiger tank, all you care about from your foxhole is there's this, this yeah. enormous tank yeah. with a massive gun and lots of armour and SS types manning it coming towards you, and you yeah. think, you know, it's pretty scary. But one of the problems we have in the narrative of the Second World War is that we've only been looking at it from two out of the three levels of war. So three levels of war are strategical, uh, operational and tactical. And and the strategical obviously is, I mean, you know all this stuff, but it's it's kind of the overview, what you're trying to, your overall war aims. The tactical is is your bloke in his tank, the guy in his foxhole, bloke in his spitfire, the coal face of war. The operational level is the bit that binds the strategic to the tactical. It's, it's the nuts and bolts. It's, it's how you make this happen. It is your uniforms. It's your making sure your Americans have Hershey bars and Camel cigarettes and the yeah. Brits have tea and condensed milk and sugar. Yeah. It's, it's, it's your factories. It's your shipping. It's, it's, it's the processes. And that's the bit that's been left out of the narrative. For the last 50, 60 years, every book, every documentary you watch, um, book you read about the Second World War, focuses almost entirely on the strategic and tactical level, rather than looking at that bigger picture stuff. And part of the reason is because they think it's going to be boring because it's logistics and economics yeah. and all the rest of it. Yeah. But it actually isn't. It's stuff full of human drama and amazing decisions and bonkers decisions and yeah. inventions and all sorts of stuff. And the, M- and the Tiger tank absolutely falls into that, and so does the MG42. Yeah. You need to look at these things from its operational point as well as its tactical. What did, what did a Bren gun cost in man hours to make? You- About 45. So... Yeah, forty-five, fifty. Man so hours. even less, less than the yeah. MG forty-two, yeah. and, mm. and and it has a wooden handle on the barrel, yeah, so that you so can you, pick it up and, and it's balanced. Or when you need to change the barrel, which you only have to do after two hundred and fifty thousand rounds, quarter of a million rounds when you change the barrel. So a Bren gun team would have it. You know, each section has a of ten men, which has a has a Bren gun attached to it. Would only carry one spare barrel, whereas these guys are having to carry six. You know, they, they weigh a bit, you know. Yeah, and also there isn't a wooden handle to, no, to, there isn't. to pull so, that off. So, that, so, uh, so yes, yeah. on the far side of that is the catch which you release and, and uh, that enables you to, that, that separates the barrel from the breech and, and you literally just pull it over and just drop it out. But, you know, at the time you're dropping it out, it's already flipping hot and, you know, it's dangerously close to your, your, your head. Yeah. Um, and in actual fact, what they issued them with was a massive sort of gauntlet. auger gauntlet mitt that you would use for your cooker. Um, but obviously, you know, the heat of battle, the last thing you're thinking around is, like, where's my argument um, to change my barrel? You just don't. So lots of people get burned and scorch marks on the side of their face and all this kind of stuff. You just don't have that problem with the Bren gun. And also the um, the, the bipod that you've got there wobbles around like you don't know yeah. what. It's all over the place. Whereas on the Bren gun, it just folds back onto the barrel. And it, when it clicks into place, it clicks into place. But then if you're delivering a huge amount of lead in a short burst, none of it needs to really be accurate, does it? it, it uh... Well, there is an advantage to not being accurate to a certain point, but the, but the answer to that with your Bren gun is you just waft it around a bit, yeah. and then it yeah. then it isn't. I mean, you know, what you're trying to do is, obviously you're trying to kill people and, and stop people in their tracks, but actually also wanting to wound people so that the others will stop to kind of yeah, get yeah. a wounded guy. Uh, and, and you're also trying to just get them to get down. 
But there's an amazing report that's done in Sicily by Lionel Wigram, who uh, incidentally is the grandfather of Lionel Wigram, the film producer who works with Guy Ritchie, amazingly. Uh, But anyway, he does this amazing report in Sicily. And what he discovers is that you never hear an MG42 at the same time as you hear a 30 caliber American machine gun or a Bren gun. Because what tends to happen is people sort of go, and then they duck down. And then the other person goes, and they take it in turns. So, you know, they do work as fire suppressors. Fascinating. Well, we need to uh, let the MG42 cool down now. We're going to take a short break (laughs) while I go and urinate on the barrel. Um, Back in a minute. (laughs) Right, so welcome back. Um, By the way, earlier on when I said I was going to go pee on the barrel of a the MG42, that is a, a time-honoured way of cooling a machine gun down if you're in real trouble. Yeah, so, any, any which way you can. Any which way you can. Um, now, also, the, th- the interesting thing about the MG42 is sharp-eyed viewers of Star Wars will probably notice that some of the stormtroopers are carrying sort of pimped MG42s to make them look like space blasters, but it's in f- and, and MG34s. And, oh, I uh, never knew yeah, that. Yeah, and um, Sterling submachine guns without the magazine attached, which is, of course, <laughs> the descendant of the Sten gun. Um, so even in a, lo- a galaxy far, far away a long, t- long, long time ago, the MG42 casts its shadow. Yeah, well, you know, weapons and war. I mean, I just noticed that you've got a big poster for Where Eagles Dare, and I think we're, yeah. we're very much as one on loving that film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From the music to everything about yeah, it. Yeah, uh, And one of the bits I really love about it is those magazines that just never end. Yeah. You know, you've got Clint Eastwood at the back of the bus at the end of the film as they're heading towards the airport. He's got an MP40, a Schmeisser, as we yeah. was like a submachine gun. Yeah. Takes about three seconds to fire one of those magazines. Yeah. And it's an infinite, infinite yeah. uh, weapon. I mean, there's, a, there's that scene in the corridor where they, a machine gun crew actually set up an MG34 on a stand, don't they? And, and he's at the other end, and they, they, they fire back down the corridor. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and would, would basically destroy that corridor with that gun and miss him. Not only miss him, but give him time to cheekily lean around and uh, annihilate them all. But anyway, that... that who cares? Uh, I have broadsword calling Danny Boy as my text alert. Of course you do. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, last time um, uh, we talked about one minute in Madagascar. Yes. A, 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 a minute in Madagascar. As my forgotten moment of the Second World War. What's, what have you brought uh, this time? Yeah, well, it's a dark episode, really. Um, it, it's, it's an episode from northern Italy. And the war in the north of Italy after the fall. fall Rome falls in, in June the 4th. Yeah, 1944, so two days before D-Day, and then, of course, yeah. two days later was D-Day, and everyone sort of forgets about Italy, and there's not very many books about it, there's not many programmes about it, and everything that happens after the, 4th, you know, after the 6th of June, 1944, in Italy, is just sort of forgotten. And what is also forgotten is that while the Allied armies and German armies are, are sort of knocking 10 rounds out of each other in this terrible war in the mountains of, of Italy... There's a kind of civil war going on as well. Yes. And there's loads of partisan bands, and the Germans have a very kind of strong-arm rule. Ostensibly, Mussolini's back in charge of this kind of sort of new fascist state, but it's kind of, you know, it's puppet state stuff under the Nazis. And there are growing numbers of partisan bands, because what happens if you're a young bloke, it's a bit the same in France, if you're a young bloke in Italy, you get called up. You either have to go and Mm. be in a sort of police... SS police battalion, or we have to go and join one of Mussolini's new divisions. And most of them just don't want to do this. Yeah. So the alternative is to just run to the hills and become a partisan. 
And there is this, uh, when I was, um, I was doing, I did both a novel um, set in this this period of the war and also um, a big, serious, fat history book yeah. about it. And I was looking into it and uh, there was one partisan band I came across called the Stella Rossa. And although they're, you know, that translates as a red star, actually they weren't political at all. They were completely apolitical. And um, the... Because, the- because a big part of the complexion of... Uh, of- uh, there was communist resistance, right. and, and you've got because it's it, Italian post-war history. There's lots of there's lots of sort of communist mo- uh, uh, maneuverings and communist politics and Soviet uh, uh, lever pulling and all that sort of thing. All that sort of stuff, and and, all, and there were lots of ostensibly communist partisan brigades who were yeah. known as Garibaldi brigades. Yeah, but the Stella Rossa, despite their name, weren't. And the commander was a guy called Lupo. So actually, his real name was Mario Musolesi. Yeah, uh, and he was an incredibly charismatic guy, and all he was interested in was just getting rid of the what he called the Nazi fascisti. Yeah, uh, and he wasn't interested in politics. He just wanted everyone to come in and just kick the hell out of the Nazis and get them out of there, and, and of course the fascist regime as well. Anyway, he he had over the summer of 1944, the Stella Rossa kind of reigned supreme in this area of the Apennines, which is about kind of you know 15, 20 miles south of uh, of Bologna, right. and they really rule the rule the roost. But they're also completely dependent on these mountain folk, these contadini, which are these sort of sharecropping peasants, farmers that have been living the same way for centuries. And there are these, I mean, the mountains are absolutely stunning. They're really, really beautiful. No one goes, not on the tourist map, yeah. like Tuscany is yeah. or Umbria or something, but they are really beautiful. And there's this ancient community up there. You, you sort of go up the first slopes and there's a kind of sort of mountain plains and there are these little sharecroppers, these contadini, and, and they're going about their business. But of course, that's where the parsons are and they can only exist with the tacit support of this local community, this local population. Yeah. And like a lot of Italians, their real motivation is just they don't like central authority. It's not that yes. they've got particularly anything against fascists or massively against Nazis. They want to be left alone. They just want to be left alone and get on with their own thing. And if there's a sort of local guy and they're sort of stacking up for it, they sort of go, yeah, all right, yeah, you can hang out in my, my grain store, no, not a problem. And so basically that, that's what happens. At the end of September 1944, the Germans are, are being pushed back. This is the big attack on the Gothic line, which is this yeah. big, strong defensive position, roughly kind of Pisa to Rimini but in depth across the mountains. The Allies are trying to kind of force their way through, get off the mountains and into the flat plains of the Po Valley where they can use their armour and overwhelming firepower and all the rest of it. And the Germans are trying to stop them. So for the Germans, they've got a problem because they're having enough trouble at the front and they're now being attacked at their backs as well. And General Schlem is the commander of the first Fallschirmjäger Corps, so the first paratrooper corps. And he says to, you know, right, we've got, this is just totally intolerable. I can't have this. These Stella Rossa guys, we've got to sort them out. So he organises a group of troops, some of which are Wehrmacht, but some of which are the reconnaissance battalion of the 16th Waffen-SS Panzergrenadier Division. Right. So super politically motivated. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it says, right, go and sort them out. So their way of sorting it out is to just get in a ring around this area, work their way up and just kill and burn everything in sight. And they do. And it ends up being, it's, it's launched on the morning of the 29th of September 1944, and it is the worst civilian massacre in the West in the entire war. 770 people killed. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely amazing. So it's bigger than Orador, which is yeah, the kind of infamous the, one in France. Which is the infamous one, yeah. Uh, or Ladici, which is the one outside Prague, yeah. you know, just after, after uh, um, Heydrich is yeah. assassinated in Prague. 
op, you know, anthropoid, anthropoid that film and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Uh, and this is the biggest one, and no one's heard of it. It's just completely forgotten, well, I, I'll and confi- I just think that's wrong. I I'll think people should know about it. I'll confess, ne- I, I, I hadn't heard of this. No. And, I, and one of the reasons is because after D-Day, um, Italy kind of falls off the right off everyone's radar. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating you say that, I mean, it, it, very often in, in descriptions of stages of the, of, of, the, of the Allied and German struggle is that there's a period where the Allies are trying to get out onto some planes where their armour will work and that they get, they get stuck, they get hurt up. Because Nor- there's a lot about Normandy where, where it's, once we've bust out of this country, we'll be able to do a, a great big sweeping cavalry charge and yeah. hoover up the miles. And, yeah. and, and, and there's the, the, the same thing kind of happens all over. Because because actually that's the that's actually what the the story is is the Germans are locked in defensive mode, yep. and if you can peel them open, you can you can break out and finish them off. But trying to trying to peel them open is really really difficult, yeah. particularly in a mountain. Because what the Allies have, of course, is this huge mechanical and technological advantage and firepower advantage. But in a mountain, it's still down to people on yeah. their own two feet and yeah. mules. Yeah. And, and you can't really take but, tanks. And... But 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 were so all the contadini were were were, were murdered then. So literally everyone, because if you think about it from a sort of pragmatic German point of view, yeah, you've yeah. got a problem. How do you get rid of everyone? And how do you distinguish, you know, it's the same problem we have with, you know, in Afghanistan. You know, how do you avoid collateral damage when you're going against guys who aren't wearing uniforms? It's yeah. really difficult. Yeah. We obviously try and make sure that we don't do that and, and don't kill everybody. Um but they're Nazis and they're Germans and they don't really care. And so they just kill everybody. And I have to say it's incredibly effective because after that there's no more problem with the Stella Rossa because they're destroyed and Lupo's killed and everyone's killed. But I remember interviewing this lady. So it, was, it wasn't one big massacre, they all lining up on top of the hill and shooting them all. It was they, they find little clumps of people, they corral them into a church or, or to a barn or whatever it might be and just shoot them. So there was 202 Italian old guys, women, children, babies who were sheltering in a church, SS come up from the 16th Waffen SS Reconnaissance Battalion, bang on the door, pull out the priest, shoot him in the head, get rid of him. Yeah. And then they order all, the, um, all the, the people in the church to come out and march them kind of 70 yards down the road to this little walled cemetery. This is absolutely typical of how yeah. they have things in Italy in that place. You have a yeah. church and then you have the walled cemetery just down the road. And they pass them in. And the, um, I remember Cornelia saying to me, she, one thing she absolutely remembered was there was an old lady in front of her who was sort of, you know, a bit infirm. And this German soldier helped her, took her arm and led her f- across the threshold of the gate. And they very quickly realised what was going on because they were told to go and stand over by this wall, the far wall. Yeah, then they yeah. got out a machine gun, one of these babies, you know, your MG42s, started getting out ammunition. And they just shot them all. And she survived because just before the firing started, um, one of the women there wasn't with her baby and had a, a panic attack. And just said, like, you know, I've got to get my baby, I've got to get my baby, and ran towards them. So they shot her dead and then lobbed in a grenade. Right. And the grenade blast didn't kill Cornelia, but knocked her unconscious. And when she came to, everyone was dead, including uh, her, her twin brother and sister, who oh, were younger than her. Her other sister was, uh, had been shot in the head, but was, was still alive. And her mother was still alive, but had been shot across the thighs and bled to death a little bit oh. later. And she stayed under those bodies totally soaked in blood till three o'clock that afternoon and the shoot firing happened about 9.15 in the morning. And, and how's this com- commemorated there? Is there a... Is there a uh, 
you know, is there a memorial? Is there? Yeah. So, so then the Allies moved up and they occupied that. And, it, and for the whole of that winter, the Allies were um, the Sixth South African Armoured Division, the Guards Brigade were were in that area, and it just got blasted even more. Uh, and it was, you know, after the war, no one ever lived there again, and it's just a ruined village, and it's been preserved as a ruined village. The churches are there, the the, the cemetery that I'm talking about, you can yeah. still see it. You can still see the bullet holes and stuff like that. Um, I'll post up a picture, but it's yeah. um, it's. There's a big memorial in the nearby town, which is the mausoleum, which is where all the all the bodies were put, um, and it's it, you know it's incredibly moving. And did this get to did this get to Nuremberg? Was there a, was no. anyone put no one no one brought to justice? The for commander this? of so um, uh, Max Simon was the commander of the 16th Waffen SS. Yeah. He was sentenced to death. That was then commuted, and he was released in 1954 or something like that. Went to work in, went died to, in 1961. Work in a paint factory or something. Yeah, know, well, well, but he, he survived. <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah. And then Walter Rader was the Austrian commander of the 16th Waffen SS reconnaissance battalion. He was he was extradited by the Americans after the war, put on trial by the Italians, and then put in Gaeta, which is this sort of you know island. Yeah. Penal colony kind of thing, um, prison um, off off the Rome coast, um, and he stayed there till nineteen eighty one. Really? Yeah, he did thirty six years or something. Right. Oh, that. And then was released. Good. And died not long after. Good. But yeah, no. So it's a it's a, it's a grim Bloody old story. Hell. I did, cause, because that that is not on that is not on anyone's. Orador is the Orador is the sort of uh, yeah. you know right rightly well known. Um, in France, that the, the, the site yeah. and the preserved ruined village and all that sort of thing, and 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 part of the picture, and also of course part of how France has um, one of the ways France got got out of the it's quite compromised uh, situation yes. post war. One way of di- sort of digesting the French experience of occupation was to is, is Orador. I'm not saying which isn't to say. It's been used politically, but it's certainly it's offered a reference point that's perhaps different to Fichy collaboration or, yeah. or, 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 or any of the rest of it. So, but but that this isn't that uh, does this occupy some, in the Italian cultural and political imagination? Where does this exist? People who are interested in the period know about it, but it's not it's not in the kind of public consciousness in Gosh. a way that something you know if 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 that had happened in Britain, you know, oh, we'd have. Montessori Day, wouldn't yeah, we? Yeah, Every yeah, year yeah, and all yeah. this kind of stuff. It'd be such a big thing. So it, it is, but it isn't, if you know what I mean. So I, so I wrote, I, I used, uh, I sort of fictionalised it in a novel that I wrote some years ago called Pair of Silver Wings. Uh, and I, I changed everything. So Lupo is called Volpe, which is instead of the wolf, yeah. he's the fox. Yeah. Uh, Montessori is Monte Luna. Yeah, you know, it's the sun, it's the moon rather than the sun. And I kept it absolutely, very deliberately, so that you wouldn't, mistake what it is uh, and that's what we're trying to make into a movie at the moment which is quite fun oh right so you know it's hopefully a bit cheery one I like it well actually I mean, not ultimate... much of a date movie is it yeah, well ultimately <laughs> redemptive oh well thank god for that <laughs> yeah oh. what a that is an extraordinary story and um I, I, I I'll hold my hand up I knew absolutely nothing about that I... it is amazing it's absolutely amazing and it's so beautiful up there and it, and it is you know like a lot of these places like when you go to Auschwitz you can't hear any bird song it's the same thing yeah. You know, it's, it's it's a sort of stillness in that mountain air, but it is stunningly beautiful. It's incredible. Well, I yeah. think that's it for today. Um, thank you very much, James. It's oh, thank all, you. Oh. Always a pleasure. So from the, an MG42 to the consequences of the MG42, well, basically. Yeah. Um, well, we'll, uh, we'll return to a lighter mood well, next week. Well, it's the but same. But people can't know this I stuff. don't know. There's not that much light on offer, is there? <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, thanks everyone for listening. Um, hashtag we have ways. 
Um, uh, I'm Al Murray. This is James Holland. Cheerio. Cheerio.